This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. An environmental advocacy group is suing to obtain the text messages of Frederick Prane, chair of the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board. The board serves as the policy-setting authority for the Department of Natural Resources. Prane has faced scrutiny in recent months as he's refused to step down from the board, despite the fact that his term expired this past spring. According to the Associated Press, Midwest Environmental Advocates has filed the lawsuit in Dane County Circuit Court. The organization previously filed an open records request for Prane's texts, but were told there were no relevant records, a claim the plaintiff disputes. The organization is pushing Prane to release all of his texts from June 29, 2020 through June 29, 2021 that relate to his decision to stay on the board. As listeners of our bi-weekly segment Transparency Talk may know, lawmakers' text messages are subject to the state's open records laws, but they are notoriously difficult to get a hold of. A Dane County judge says construction of the Cardinal Hickory Creek transmission line can be temporarily stopped. that comes with a hefty price tag. It's the latest development between environmental groups and utility groups in the construction of the Cardinal Hickory Creek line. In a hearing yesterday, Dane County Circuit Court Judge Jacob Frost ruled that construction can stop while a separate issue with the project is considered in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. But first, the environmental groups need to post bond for the cost of stopping the project to the tune of $32 million. That's according to Wisconsin Public Radio. A separate case involving alleged conflict of interest in this issuing of a permit for the project is being considered by the state high court. A coalition of Democratic lawmakers are floating a pair of bills that seek to ensure that patients have access to medically accurate reproductive health information from healthcare providers. In a press release, lawmakers wrote that the state legislature has, quote, passed laws that restrict access to abortion care and mandate that doctors forced biased, non-medical information on patients, unquote. The legislation, which has not yet been formally introduced, faces long odds in the Republican-controlled legislature. A Madison man has been charged in a crash that killed three high school seniors in Middleton earlier this month. According to the Associated Press, Eric Mayrain is facing several criminal charges in Dane County, including reckless homicide. Per the criminal complaint, Mayring's blood alcohol concentration was just over 0.24%, three times the legal limit. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Mayring is currently hospitalized and no court appearance has been scheduled. A jury is deliberating and expected to issue a verdict at any moment in a case involving an assault on a state senator during last summer's Black Lives Matters protest in Madison. Yesterday and today, a jury heard arguments in a case that alleges Corita O'Reilly sparked the assault on State Senator Tim Carpenter in June 2020 after Carpenter attempted to take pictures or video of the BLM protest. O'Reilly is charged with being a party to substantial battery and disorderly conduct. Last month, another person accused of being involved in the assault, Samantha Hammer, took a plea deal of civil disorderly conduct violation. Yesterday, a jury heard hours of testimony from Carpenter. It also heard testimony from two Madison reporters who witnessed the assault while news gathering. Those two reporters, WORT News Director Charlie Pittman and Isthmus Senior Writer Dylan Brogan, were ordered by the court to testify. And here's your daily COVID-19 numbers, courtesy of the state's Department of Health Services. 
The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 1,977 new confirmed cases. 16 counties, not including Dane County, currently have a critically high level of case activity. And now on to today's top story. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss is the sole defendant in another lawsuit seeking to obtain documents related to the ongoing review of the 2020 presidential vote in Wisconsin. WORT reporter Carolina Bursian has the story. Earlier this month, a national watchdog group filed a lawsuit against Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and the Wisconsin Assembly for failing to turn over documents related to the ongoing review of last year's presidential election. And today, that same group filed another lawsuit for the same reason. This time, Speaker Voss is the sole defendant. The suit alleges that Speaker Voss has delayed the release of documents and that the records that were received under the records request were irrelevant. Austin Evers is the executive director of American Oversight, the watchdog group bringing both lawsuits. Uh, The the assembly has produced some records in response to American Oversight um, open records requests, but with respect to the ones that are in our lawsuit, we have not received adequate responses. So that's why we have a right to sue under state law and the Assembly and Speaker Voss have an obligation to turn documents over. But Speaker Voss maintains that the record should be withheld until the election review is completed, likening it to a district attorney releasing records in the middle of a murder investigation. Director Evers said that this indicates Voss's viewpoint on the entire investigation. I think that should tell you everything about uh, how he sees his basic transparency obligations and really sheds light on what he thinks this investigation by Justice Gableman is looking for. He likened it to a criminal investigation. I think we need to know a lot more about what's going on. The $676,000 election review is funded by taxpayers. A recent memo from legislative attorneys indicates that records related to the investigation, spearheaded by former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, are subject to Wisconsin's public records laws. A hearing to determine whether a court can order previously requested records is slated for November 5th. Director Evers says that this hearing should show how the open records law should work. And uh, the Assembly has not met its obligations to turn those over. There are statutes on the books that give the public a right to access the Assembly's files, including the files of Justice Gable. American Oversight says their goal is to release the documents, if delivered, to the public. The election audit into the 2020 presidential election in Wisconsin is still ongoing. It was originally planned to be done by the end of October. This morning, Speaker Voss told Wisconsin Public Radio that now the investigation will be completed before the end of the year. For WORT News, I'm Carolina Bursian. As the weather turns colder, Wisconsin's nursing homes are seeing a repeat of COVID-19 outbreaks. In order to avoid a deadly wave like last winter, one nonprofit advocacy group for seniors says nursing homes and public health leaders need to accelerate the pace of vaccinations and booster shots. For more, we turn to Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Wisconsin is seeing similar COVID-19 patterns in long-term care facilities compared to fall of last year. Advocates for the state's older residents say vaccinations and booster shots can make a difference this time around. AARP's latest COVID dashboard report for Wisconsin shows an upward trend in cases among nursing home residents in recent weeks, with 20 deaths in the latest four-week period. Deaths resulting from COVID double the previous four weeks. AARP Wisconsin's Sam Wilson describes a sense of frustration, with some facilities still lagging in getting staff members vaccinated. 
He says one hopeful note is that most residents have received their shots. We hope that the vaccinations that have occurred over the last year will help stem the wave of deaths that we saw last winter. He says not only will it help to get more staff members vaccinated, but being diligent with booster shots for vulnerable populations should ensure fewer deaths. The group is asking state leaders and community partners to move as quickly with booster shots as they did when vaccinations first came on board. The latest dashboard also shows Wisconsin nursing homes continue to struggle with staffing shortages, with nearly 30 percent of facilities not having enough nurses or aides. Wilson says policymakers need to ensure residents have consistent care moving forward. Whether it's a pandemic or even a lesser challenge that may happen in our workforce or even with a really strong flu season that may occur. He says the budget reconciliation bill being debated by Congress would help in this area. A key provision calls on the Secretary of Health and Human Services to study staffing shortages and establish a minimum staffing ratio. The bill has encountered roadblocks, though, amid charges from some lawmakers that it's too costly. Supporters note the $3.5 trillion price tag is spread out over a decade. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. It's been a little more than six weeks since Madison's crisis response team hit the road. The project, which was more than a year in the making, sends a trained paramedic and mental health worker to certain emergency calls for service. Earlier today, WORT producer Jonah Chester visited the crisis response team at their headquarters on Willie Street. Madison's Community Alternative Response Emergency Services Program, or CARES for short, operates out of Fire Station Number 3 on Willie Street. They're dispatched in two-person squads, one paramedic and one mental health counselor, to certain non-violent 911 calls downtown. The goal of the program, which is tentatively going to expand citywide in the coming years, is to replace police officers as the default first responders in non-violent mental health emergencies. The four-person CARES team works out of a shared office space at the front of the station. They work in relative silence, which is occasionally punctuated by announcements from the overhead speaker. Their response vehicle, a gray Chrysler minivan with the CARES logo splashed across the side, shares garage space with the fire department's other emergency response vehicles. Compared to the fire department's rides, the CARES vehicle is nondescript. The only thing that actually distinguishes it as an emergency response vehicle is a small yellow emergency light on its roof. 
That, according to Assistant Fire Chief Chase Stedman, was added after the CARES van got ticketed by parking enforcement. And, and this is just kind of our first iteration. The, the city happened to own this van already, and then we put some, um, you can see we put some CARES markings on it. The reason that we went with a kind of a non-emergency vehicle was because this was feedback that we got from the community and from other programs. Um, we were told that, you know, having um, something like a police car or something that looked more authoritative, even a fire department vehicle, might be a little bit intimidating. Stedman admits that there are some drawbacks to the minivan. The light on its roof is used when it's parked and responding to a call. The vehicle doesn't give off a siren or alert drivers like a standard emergency response vehicle. That also means that folks aren't required to pull over for the CARES van. That can be a problem when navigating through Madison's difficult traffic. And Stedman says it's part of the reason the program is currently limited to areas that the team can reach quickly. Uh, we're able to carry medical equipment in the van for our paramedics to use. Um, and, you know, we've got a nice big bench seat for the patients to sit in. Um, our providers can sit here. Um, you know, you know it's, it's not an ideal situation as far as, you know, in the middle of winter, um, being able to sit in this van and provide kind of counseling or intervention services. But this is, this is the best we can do right now. And it's working fine so far. The current iteration of CARES is a pilot for a larger citywide program that is tentatively set to roll out in the coming years. City leaders set aside about $600,000 to fund the program through 2021 and are weighing another $600,000 in funding for 2022. Stedman says that the team has received nearly 50 calls since they launched on September 1st. According to estimates from the city, pre-2020, Dane County's 911 center received about 7,000 mental health-related calls per year. So we've gone on a total of 49 calls up to this point. Um, we started a little slow, which was understandable. The 911 center was really being cautious about, um, you know, making sure that the calls they were sending the team on were safe calls. Um, but slowly over time, we've been averaging um, in the past few weeks about three calls a day. Um, so for an eight hour shift, you know, they spend a little over an hour on each one of these calls typically. So, um, you know, they're, they're busy, but we expect to um, obviously, you know, have the call volumes increase um, as the the 911 center gets a better understanding of the types of calls to send the team to, and also, of course, as we expand out beyond just the police central district. Paco Bonin, one of two paramedics on the CARES team, says that the ability to take their time with folks experiencing a mental health crisis is crucial, and a departure from how first responders typically handle emergencies. But uh, traditionally, an ambulance, um, especially in a busy area like the city of Madison, or paramedics, they have expediency in, in, in the forefront of their response, you know, so they will try to solve or provide that care and transport and then go back in service as expedient as possible so they can be available for the next call. And, got, you know, they're super busy. In our response model, we're able to take the time that it takes to, to get people the sort of the outcome that is most favorable or appropriate in their in specific circumstance. So sometimes it's just, you know, de-escalating somebody can... We can be there for an hour, just, just getting them to a place where they're able to state what their needs are and how we can best help them, you know. And our longest call, I think, has been like three and a half hours. And just, you know, sometimes it's just listening to people and sometimes it's, you know, actually troubleshooting and making uh, contacts with different uh, resources or, or things that are that might come into play. According to Mark Norton, CARE's other paramedic, the team also helps folks connect with long-term resources. Uh, basically, we identify patients that either aren't, aren't connected to services or just have like some additional stuff going on that isn't that 
I mean, is, is acute enough to, to generate a 911 response, but usually have a few more sort of chronic issues that may be going on just related to substance use, homelessness, just like needing access to resources. And, and there's a lot of, there are a lot of people out there doing really good work, but not everyone's always connected. So just being able to kind of get to know them and be able to figure out where the opportunities are to sort of help build those connections so that they can be better able to kind of meet their needs going forward. Norton and Bonin are one half of the CARES team. Its other two members are mental health counselors from Journey Mental Health, which has partnered with the city for the program. When called, they're dispatched in two-person teams. One paramedic partnered with one mental health counselor. Grace Falk, one of the CARES mental health counselors, says establishing rapport and trust with folks experiencing a mental health emergency begins with two intentions, compassion and dignity. You know, it's filled with dignity, and it's filled with acknowledging how they're feeling and how they're interpreting things, you know, at the time. And um, having just a lot of compassion for why they might feel that way. I mean, that is it in a nutshell. Shaquilla Galvez, the team's other counselor, adds that the CARES program can only succeed with the support of the Madison community. Also, she says that if you see the CARES minivan moving through traffic, try to give them a little bit of leeway. The more we're, longer we're around, the more recognized we'll be. And I think so far we've had just like great reaction from the community in regards to like community events we've attended or just community stakeholders that we've met with, um, as well as just members of the community. We've been able to build a bit of rapport with, with community members who really are like our eyes and our ears, um, sometimes on the streets. So just that, I feel very supported by the community already. So just keep doing what we've been doing. Um, and yeah, we always like when people recognize us or say hi and things like that. Going forward, the CARES program will continue without one of its primary architects, Fire Chief Steve Davis. Davis, who has served the city in various roles for more than 30 years, announced his retirement earlier today. In a press release, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway wrote that Chief Davis was a, quote, guiding force in establishing the crisis response team. At a press conference announcing the program's launch in August, Davis said that CARES was inspired by his prior experience as a paramedic. This is a very personal day for me. Um, As a former paramedic in the city of Madison, um, there was always calls that as a paramedic that we went on for mental and behavioral health type emergencies that fell outside of our protocols. And we really, um, throughout the years, have not had another place or alternate resources to deal with people that, that are having some type of behavioral, emotional, or mental health crisis. And today, we start that journey. Madison's crisis response team operates Monday through Friday from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., responding to calls along the isthmus. There's no specific number to reach the team at. The decision on whether or not to deploy them is made by 911 emergency dispatchers. If the team receives a call for a mental health emergency but is already out on another call, police will be dispatched instead. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call shares the latest news from the UW-Madison campus. Wildlife Weekly gives a shout out to wildlife vet techs. And radio astronomy treks to star systems that can have three suns in the sky. But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to get the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, contributor Hope Carnop takes a closer look at the UW's newly announced Letters and Science Building. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by campus news writer Caitlin Helfon to discuss the university's plan for a new LNS facility that will help replace the humanities building. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course. So just to begin, can you explain what the College of Letters and Science is and how popular are the classes and programs that fall under that school? Yeah, for sure. So just based on like the information on the university website, um, 65% of like the undergraduate credit hours are in the College of Letters and Sciences. So it's a pretty big part of the UW um, like campus and uh, academic life. Um, I am in letters and sciences as a journalism major, so I've taken my fair share of humanities classes, but yeah, so it's a big, it's a big part of the undergraduate college career. Yeah. So last week, UW announced that the project was receiving a $20 million donation from the Levy family. So who are those donors? Yeah. So they, um, the two men that were there at the announcement are um, the son this but they're both the sons of the namesake of the new building which is the Irving and Dorothy Levy Hall so they are Irving and Dorothy Levy's sons they have like a family connection to Wisconsin just in general and to the UW because they both went here and they have a history of like donating and and gift giving to the university so this was just like another gift that they had they were able to give and fund the beginnings of what this project will be. Yeah. So how else is the project being funded? $60 million is being funded by the state of Wisconsin. The extra money, I think it's like $35 million, is being funded through gifts. So the Levy family set off the funding process by committing the $20 million that they're going to be giving. And that's going to be you know, the Levy, Levy Hall's going to be the namesake of the bill. Like, they're, they're the namesake. So they, I think, have a remaining $15 million to raise. And that's just going to be raised based on what they were saying at the, at the event last week. That's just going to be raised through friends. It's like a friends and family type of situation. So they're just going to fund, they're fundraising through alumni and friends of the university, things like that. Yeah, so this new LNS building, what is it expected to look like and where is it going to be located? They didn't go too much into detail about what it's going to look like. I think they have renderings on the web on their website about what's planned. They still have a little bit more planning to do, but it's going to the building's going to be right across from Celery on Park and Johnson. So there right now there are two like very small residence halls in the spot where the building is going to go. 
I think it's Zoe Bayless Co-op and Susan B. Davis Hall. So they're two like small residence halls. Some concerns had been brought up about like the undergrad, the freshman class is growing and don't they need the extra, ha- like don't they need as much housing as they can get? But these, I think only, they only house like 40 or less people. So it's not like, I don't think it's going to be like that big of a loss for the university if like that they're tearing down these two buildings. But yeah, so it's going to be in that area. And it's apparently supposed to be 19 classrooms that can all technologically up to date and, you know, just a better functioning building for the humanities department. Yeah. So the really interesting part of all of this is that it's part of UW's plan to demolish the humanities building, which houses a lot of undergraduate classes. And officials have been highlighting how that building has experienced some deterioration. Can you just describe how some students feel about having classes in humanities and maybe what your experience has been like yourself in that building? Just as far as like deterioration, like how you mentioned, the university like estimated that there's around $70 million of deferred maintenance for the Moss Humanities Building, which is like crazy. But I think like, at least in my experience, I think students sort of view having classes in Moss as like a rite of passage because it's such a funky building. When I took classes there, I haven't taken classes there since my freshman year, to be fair. And I'm a junior now, but it hasn't really, it hasn't changed. But when I did have classes there, you know, it's like, it's very hard to navigate if you've never been. Some of the floors don't even have bathrooms. So it's like, you got to go. It's just, it's a struggle to find like where the bathroom is. And one of the classes that I had, the classroom, like windows were covered with concrete, just purely based on the design of the building. So this class that I had that was like a photography class twice a week for like two and a half hours got hard. It got hard to do class in there because the the room was always so dim just because there was no light. And the classes are kind of small. They can't really, they can't really accommodate like the technological needs of like modern learning. But I do think like the building itself is so weird that it's so cool. Like it's, it's so weird that it's cool because you don't really come across buildings like that across camp. Like there, there aren't really buildings like that otherwise across campus, I don't think. Not at least to the extent that Moss is, like just an odd building. I think Becky Blank, when she made her speech at this event, had said something about that she doesn't want to have to apologize to the new professors for the building. She doesn't want to have to like apologize that this is the where they're going to have to teach. That she wants like the space to reflect that like the fact that we're a top institution. Yeah. So what are the next steps for this building? When is construction going to get underway? They're set to break ground in 2023 and finish by 2025. And because it's going to be such a, such a big project, sort of I'm, what I'm assuming would sort of be like the timeline of the Nick that we watched, you know, get built over the last few years. Um, I'm assuming it's sort of going to be a similar situation. So the undergraduates that are younger than us are going to watch this building be built, but might not be able to actually take classes in it. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think listeners should know about your story? I think this is going to be like a good, it's, it's something that's long overdue. This is going to be a good project in the long run for future students, but it might impede the traffic of just walking on campus, you know, just like how we've experienced this whole year with just construction everywhere. 
Um, so it might be kind of annoying, but I think it'll be good in the long run. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. Of course. Thank you for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcast, The Student Dive, on our website. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On this week's episode of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg takes a moment to recognize the work of the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Veterinary Technicians. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about veterinary technicians. Now, specifically, I'll be talking about wildlife veterinary technicians, uh, but it's actually National Veterinary Technician Week this week, which means we are celebrating the appreciation of all of our techs that are helping us with animal care, um, those that are compassionate enough to help wildlife. You know, we know that it is a very difficult industry to be in, um, and uh, we wouldn't honestly be able to do a lot of what we do without their help. And we are lucky here at Dane County Humane Society to have two wildlife veterinary technicians on our staff. Um, one of them is leading um, a joint session with the UW-Madison um, Veterinary Special Species Department and is running our wildlife medicine program. So really, really cool things going on here at DCHS. And the, uh, the Appreciation Week actually runs from the 17th through the 23rd of October. And so I thought, oh, it'd be kind of fun to share what veterinary technicians really do for us in our field. Because as wildlife rehabilitators, we obviously have a license to care for wildlife. And what that means is that we're helping to treat those patients based on a veterinarian recommendation. Now, a veterinarian has gone to veterinary school and has gone through many, many years of training. And it's very, very similar to being in med school, except your, you know, focuses on different species of animals just not humans. People sometimes, you know, make some some comments about that saying, oh, well, you know, you're not really a doctor. Well, heck yes. Veterinary school is incredibly difficult to go through. You have to study as much as any other doctor would, learning, uh, you know, how to interpret x-rays or how to, um, you know, work with certain animals and, um, you know, pharmacy drugs to use. And I could go on and on and on about what you would learn in veterinary school. And a lot of folks actually specialize. So for our wildlife veterinary technicians, it's a little different. You still have to obviously go to school to become a technician. Um, generally, it's not always going to be a four-year program like you would if you go to vet school. It could be anywhere from a two-year program or more, but you also can still specialize. So the um, veterinary technicians can range anywhere from our wildlife vet techs to they have veterinary dental technicians, ones that specialize in just the work with teeth, which for us, we our veterinarians help us with dentals on animals like opossums, believe it or not. They sometimes have very crummy teeth. We have our veterinary behavior technicians, so those that might work with more of your domestic animal species with behavioral problems. 
And there's even an Academy of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Technicians. So, you know, those that are in emergency hospital situations helping to, you know, respond to anything, you know, a 24-hour clinic, dog hits, gets hit by a car. You know, that's something similar to what we experience here in wildlife where you might have a bald eagle hit by a car and our vet techs are coming in at, you know, nine o'clock at night and trying to do what we can to triage that patient so that it lives to the next day. And, you know, we all do this as wildlife rehabilitators too, but our technicians are able to do some more things because they've had more training. So they might help to uh, monitor and run anesthesia under the presence of a veterinarian. They might be able to do more diagnostic work than uh, some of us might have been educated for. So when I think of diagnostics, I think of, you know, parasitology as an example. So how do we find parasites internally in wildlife patients? Well, we're going to collect some feces or maybe we're going to collect an oral swab or take some sort of excretion that we've found and put it on a slide. But there's a lot that goes into that. You know, it's not just, okay, we're going to put this species on a slide and, you know, put it in some solution and look at it under a microscope and say, oh, what's this? You have to know your stuff. You have to know what parasites you're looking at. You know, are we seeing things like whipworms or hookworms, uh, tapeworms? And are we finding eggs or are we finding the adults? And then what do you treat that with? So again, there's a lot of overlap in the wildlife rehabilitation field, but technicians have really thoroughly studied a lot of this because there's some overlap in, you know, what domestic animals might pick up out in the wild um, that we might also see in our wildlife patients. So I think of things like roundworms, right? You know, if you have a puppy who is really young, maybe not gotten all of his deworming medication yet, you know, that pup is sharing the environment outside when he goes out to the yard and stuff with what wildlife are using. And, you know, there's a lot of zoonotic diseases and a lot of parasites that are transferred between, you know, you know, it might be oral fecal contamination or water or direct contact, but what wildlife have can certainly sometimes be transferred to uh, domestic pets. So veterinary technicians that have that specialization to be able to correctly identify the type of species of parasite, what to treat it with. Again, they're talking with their, the veterinarians. Um, they are assisting the veterinarians at all times. So a veterinarian might be doing surgery, but there's so much that needs to be monitored that whole time, uh, making sure that you know the animal has proper oxygen levels and that they're breathing correctly and that the anesthesia isn't too light or too deep. Uh, making sure that that animal is in proper position and that everything has been done. You know, I think of dogs and cats, you know, making sure that the whole area is prepped and ready to go for surgery. And then, of course, you know, doing uh, there's some legal things that, again, they can do above and beyond maybe what someone uh, without any sort of medical training could do. So it, I would encourage you to look up, you know, what do veterinary technicians do in your area, um, whether it is at your local hospital or in the wildlife field. We know that ours um, are very very highly skilled and have done lots of other externship opportunities or other continuing education in wildlife programs to different places around the, the U.S., which is great. So we're very lucky to have a couple of really lovely trained folks here that we just want to say thank you to and appreciate during National Veterinary Technician Week. So yeah, uh, you know, those vet techs, uh, we appreciate everything they do from their diagnostics of parasites or, you know, blood work and um, <laughs> helping uh, assist in surgeries uh, with the special species vets here at our program. So if you see C1, uh, say thanks. And if you know a CVT, say thanks. And just know that this has been going on since 1992. You know, it was first recognized. And I think the first celebration of this week was actually two years later in 1994 after this was all established. So 
Thank your vet techs, everyone, and uh, enjoy wildlife. And if you find any that are sick or injured, know that we are here to help as rehabilitators, veterinary technicians, and wildlife veterinarians. So uh, give us a call at the Humane Society if you find an animal in need of help. Uh, our phone number is 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. At the beginning of Star Wars, there is an iconic shot where we see Luke Skywalker, the saga's hero, gazing off into the distance where two suns are setting on the desert horizon. A related fun fact, it is in fact possible for a planet to have two or sometimes even three suns. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Melissa Morris takes a trip to visit triple star systems. Sure, one sun is great and all, but you know what's better? Three suns. Welcome to Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and today we're going to talk about planets and triple star systems. In the past decade, the known number of exoplanets, or planets orbiting around stars that are not our sun, has grown vastly. The Kepler Space Telescope was launched in 2009 and was able to provide astronomers with nearly continuous observations of the sky, meticulously measuring the amount of light produced by stars and how that changed over time. The goal of Kepler was to search for exoplanets by observing a specific kind of event known as a transit. A transit is when one object in space moves in front of another and partially obstructs it. Here on Earth, we can see transits of Mercury and Venus when they pass in front of the Sun, or we can see transits of Jupiter's moons when they move in front of Jupiter. By measuring the brightness of stars over time for extended periods of time, Kepler was able to search for exoplanet transits. You see, when a planet passes in front of a star it's orbiting, it blocks part of the light coming from the star, causing it to appear momentarily dimmer than it normally would be to Kepler and astronomers analyzing the data. This technique, combined with the influx of data from Kepler, allowed the number of known exoplanets to go from tens to hundreds to a few thousand in the span of a decade. However, Kepler isn't the only amazing piece of technology that's propelled the search for exoplanets forward. There are ways in addition to searching for transits that astronomers are able to look for and find exoplanets, especially younger ones that are just in the process of forming. But how do exoplanets actually form and when? 
It turns out an exoplanet's formation is tied directly to the formation of the star it's orbiting, which leads us to the next question. How do stars form? Throughout space, there are large clouds of gas, which those with a flair for the dramatic may refer to as stellar nurseries. The reason for this name is because when these clouds are cool and dense and experience some sort of disturbance, they have a tendency to begin to collapse under the force of their own gravity. Throughout this collapse, the cloud will begin to form multiple baby stars, hence the name stellar nursery. These baby stars are also known as protoplanetary disks because as material continues to fall towards the star, it forms a disk that orbits around the star, with some material slowly spiraling inwards and falling onto it. Within this disk is where planets can actually start to form. Imagine being a single grain of space dust orbiting around this disk full of other material. You may find another grain of space dust or two and stick together, and then maybe you'll find another and another, and another, until you've graduated from a grain of tiny space dust to a tiny space rock. More material may bump into you and cause you to grow until you're big enough to have a gravitational field of your own that can pull in even more material to make you even more massive. This is how astronomers believe planets begin to form, by accumulating material while orbiting in this protoplanetary disk. For a long time, this process was mostly theoretical, with some evidence coming in from telescopes. The main problem is that, in order to observe these protoplanetary disks, astronomers needed to search for them using a special kind of observation. Instead of looking at visible wavelengths of light that we humans can see with our eyes, they need to search for a light at much longer wavelengths that existed in the far infrared, since this is where protoplanetary disks emit more of their light. However, those observations require Required a very specific kind of telescope that looks very different from anything an optical astronomer needs. Now, in order to observe light at long wavelengths, astronomers have built radio telescopes that look like giant satellite dishes. You may have heard of the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico or the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. Both of these telescopes are incredibly sensitive to radio emission. However, they can't get clear, crisp images with a lot of detail. This is where the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, or ALMA, has come in. ALMA is an array of smaller radio telescopes that move and act together like one giant radio telescope. This is done in order to get high-resolution images of objects in space so that astronomers can see tiny details such as rings caused by planets in a protoplanetary disk. In fact, in 2014, an image of the protoplanetary disk called HL Tari was released. What made this image fascinating was that you could see very clearly while potential planets were clearing away debris in the disk around the young star, creating what looked like dark gaps in the disk. This image inspired a great deal of research into how planets form around young stars. While more protoplanetary disks have been observed by ALMA, recently astronomers have made a rather curious discovery about one protoplanetary disk in particular. You see, this protoplanetary disk doesn't just exist around a single star or even two stars in a binary orbit. Nope, it surrounds three stars that are all orbiting one another. 
While it's not uncommon to have stars in binary orbits or even triple stars, such as the stars closest to us, Alpha, Beta, and Proxima Centauri, what is uncommon is for these stars to all be surrounded by the same protoplanetary disk. While this alone is impressive, that's not all that these astronomers saw when they pointed Alma at this bizarre system. They noticed that in this image of a protoplanetary disk, there was a huge gap in the disk, indicating that there could be a young planet or planet planets in the process of forming around these three stars. Even after performing a series of simulations to see the orbits of the stars themselves, and if they could be responsible for causing this gap in the disk, the astronomers concluded that a planet orbiting at a distance of about 100 times farther away than the Earth is from the Sun was the most likely answer for what they observed. This makes this observation the first time somebody has discovered a planet forming around a triple star system. That's all for Radio Astronomy today, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and I am wishing you a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Carolina Bursian and Nate Wagihot. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Anoisha Patio. Good night. <laughs>